Good evening. This is Cinema 60. Arigato. Shitsumon wa awari desu. Mou ichido o namae o Mako-san. Eiko desu. Eiko wa atashi desu. Soktai Eiko, 20-sai, gakusei desu. Dewa Biko desu. Dewa Biko-san. Saigo ni nani ka hitokoto. 全部私には関係ないことです。母のことをおっしゃってるんでしたら、母はいません。母の母のことをおっしゃってるんでしたら、母の母の母のことをおっしゃってるんでしたら、それは。Hello, Jenna. Konnichiwa, Bart. Gomenasai. That means I'm sorry, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's about all the Japanese I know. Watashi no namai wa Jenna kun chan desu anata wa. That's all I know. Well, tonight we're talking about Japanese movies. Japanese New Wave. Nubero Bagu. Nubero Bagu. Right. Which might sound an awful lot to you like Nouvelle Vague, the French word for the French New Wave. Shochiko studio wanted to capitalize on the whole French New Wave thing and uh, hired a bunch of young directors to kind of do whatever they wanted. And they said, hey, we'll call it Nubero Bagu and we'll have our own New Wave. So this was definitely a less organic movement than the French New Wave, but also inspired by it. We've done a few Japanese movies already on this show, and uh, most of them would be considered Japanese New Wave. Our first episode, we did The Warped Ones. Oh, yeah. By uh, Gurahara. That that definitely would count. We did Woman in the Dunes, Tesha Gahara. Uh, neither of those uh, directors will be represented tonight because we're focusing on the Japanese New Wave films of 1969. Why, you might ask. Why, Bart? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, 1969, because in some respects, that's the pinnacle of Japanese New Wave. Things just sort of turned into sex movies after that. But mainly I picked 1969 because there were a lot of great Japanese movies that came out that year. We're going to talk about six, and probably if you know anything about Japanese 60s movies, you've probably heard of some of these. Most of the key Japanese New Wave directors made a great film in 1969. Let me let me talk a little bit about Japanese cinema right now and what was happening before the 60s in Japan. Yeah, let me know, because this is something that I've been openly ignorant about. <laughs> uh, in back row, my other my other life, I have a podcast segment with Carlo. We called it Post Anime Club because the two of us were totally obsessed with anime and manga as children and yet, for some reason, we kind of skipped out on Japanese cinema, you know, besides some like major movies and a lot of animated movies we've seen. But anything pre like 90s to 80s, we were, we got hazy on. So we set out to watch either entire oeuvres of certain directors or to do double features and stuff like that. So it's something that I've really enjoyed doing. And I'm excited to have done this on Cinema 60 because this was even weirder and definitely different from the stuff that we had been choosing, which were, they're, they're all interesting, but they're a little bit safe because it's stuff that we choose because we're like, oh, that, that still looks cool. You know, like we were sort of basing this mostly off of 
the things that visually appeal to us as artists. <laughs> so this was definitely more out of Bart's mind, <laughs> which was just as fun. Didn't you start with Ozu on back row? We did, but Ozu is beautiful. I mean, there you've got the classic Japanese directors, Akira Kurosawa, Yasujiro Ozu, Kenji Mizuguchi, and they were all... They've been working in the Japanese studio system for quite some time. After the war, their movies started getting shown, you know, everywhere, all all over the world. They hit the West, Akira Kurosawa in particular, but the really snooty cinephiles, you know, also sought out Mizuguchi and Ozu saying, oh, well, if you want real Japanese cinema, this is what you have to see. And, and all three of them are pretty celebrated in Japan. A lot of what we watched for this episode and a lot of what the Japanese New Wave was all about was responding to these classic directors and their very stately films that celebrate this, you know, one particular aspect of Japanese culture, this sort of, you know, very proper, upper-class, honor-bound society. The Japanese New Wave, you know, responded to that just because... A lot of it was about, well, there's this whole aspect. There's just, you know, what about the lower classes? What about the rest of us? Let's talk about what Japan is really like. And uh, a lot of these filmmakers were inspired in that way to sort of, you know, show what Japan is really like and how it's very different than what these classic Japanese directors put on screen. Sort of the beginning of the change happened with the Sun Tribe films, uh, Raised Fruit by uh, Nakahira. That was kind of a hit. 1956, these youths, these two brothers are in love with the same girl. And it's uh, crazy wild passions and kids misbehaving. By kids, I mean young adults misbehaving and everybody dying. And it was a hit. So the Japanese studios wanted to make more movies like this. More movies that appealed to the kids. So like I was saying, the studios, Shochiku in particular, decided, well... Why don't we start our own new wave? Let's hire a bunch of young directors and get them in here to make whatever they want. You know, directors that haven't been brought up in the traditional apprenticeship program that happened in the studios. And so they hired people like uh, Nagisa Oshima, Shinoda, Yoshida, all, all of whom we're, we're going to talk about films by tonight. And they sort of made these very non-traditional films that were the antithesis of what the classic Japanese directors were doing. Very quickly, Shochiku came to realize that these movies weren't making the kind of money for them that they uh, had hoped. So the studio-inspired new wave came to a close pretty quickly, but a lot of these directors went on and, and started making independent films. So by 1969, pretty much everything that we watched for tonight was uh, independently produced outside of the studio system. There's actually, in the mid-60s, the ATG Art Theater Guild came to be, and they financed these low-budget films... And they provided half the budget. You know, if a director and producer could raise half the budget, they would provide the other half. And then they would uh, distribute the film in their theaters. So a lot of interesting films were made in the mid-60s just because they were made for a low budget and the directors could do whatever they want. 1969 was sort of when all of this peaked. These independent productions were very artistically ambitious at this point, And the independent productions hadn't kind of devolved into the sex films that became so popular in the, in the late 60s and early 70s. I mean, by the 70s, everything that 
you know, all the popular cinema in Japan was just super violent Yakuza movies and, and sex films. Pinku films, I guess you'd call them softcore pornography because you couldn't show genitals or anything, but they sort of got a, a, around it in a lot of ways and made very smutty films that probably wouldn't please the audience for a hardcore film in the West, but still smut was what was selling and art was sort of receding to the, the background. But anyway, probably the director most associated with Japanese New Wave is uh, Nagisa Oshima. Incredibly prolific in the 60s, experimented in every imaginable way making films. He's sort of referred to as the Godard of Japanese New Wave because he was so prolific and so like experimented with the form so much and because he was also so political. A lot of his films are really about what was going on in Japanese politics at the time. The first movie that we're going to talk about is uh, Boy, which he made in 1969, and it's actually fairly straightforward for Oshima. This movie, <laughs> this is I mean, throughout this entire odyssey that you set us up on here. Multiple times I was ready, and sometimes I did reach out just to yell at you because some of these movies were just—it's <laughs> rough stuff. They were just really painful in that they were either so bleak or that they were just like like what like what am I watching for boy boy creeps up on you I did not expect boy to bring me on the verge of tears by the end of it but boy did it so the plot of this movie was there is a titular boy who is named Toshio Omura and he is uh he's a young boy of I don't I, I don't I don't know how old children are they all look like they're like 10 or a baby to me or 18 i can't tell he's, <laughs> so he's nine like or six? something okay whatever <laughs> <laughs> he's a young boy and he lives with his baby brother who's named chibi which is very cute uh the english translation calls that peewee which i feel like doesn't fully capture the the meaning of chibi but um anyhow that was the cute part and his uh he also lives with his abusive ne'er-do-well ex-army father and his stepmother whose job it is to support the family by committing insurance fraud, which is she jumps in front of vehicles and then accuses the person. They go to the doctor and she accuses them of having done this to her. And, uh, you, oh, your insurance is going to go up uh, unless you just pay me off right now. And then they get money that way. And a lot of the time she's sort of falling in a way that she's not actually getting hit. But, of course, inevitably she does actively get hit. And so there's only so long that she can do it. So they end up recruiting Toshio to be the primary breadwinner because the father claims, oh, I'm already, I'm injured, I can't do it. So the whole movie ends up being about Toshio dealing with the stress of having this unstable family life, which he ends up dealing with by pretending that he's an alien who was sent to the planet to bring righteousness and save everybody. But, you know, his coping mechanism is it only works so far. And as the movie goes on, he gets just more and more traumatized, especially as, as he starts to take on this role of the insurance fraud getter. 
Yeah, well, he gets pretty hurt, too. Like, he's got all sorts of bruises and scrapes and, you know, I guess he doesn't break anything. But it's really, it, it's traumatic for the audience to see this kid jumping in front of cars and faking injuries. Well, so there's a couple things. Like, one, this movie's based on a real-life crime family that was that Oshima read about and said, like, there's the plot of my film. <laughs> and then the lead boy, who's uh, the, the actor is Tetsuo Abe. He was actually an orphan that they found in a children's home, which I feel like is slightly messed up to take this poor child and be like, here, like relive any abuse because apparently his background was not unsimilar. I mean, not the insurance fraud bit, but the like abusive broken home bit. But then the other thing about all of this is that the movie, it, it, <laughs> I don't know what to say about like how this is shot because I, in a way, it reminded me of like Wes Anderson in the beginning. Like it yeah. sort of starts off as this like, not really. It doesn't feel like stagey, but it has that kind of weird, quirky kid living in his head vibe. Only slowly does all of the horror kind of creep up on it. Like when they're all doing the insurance fraud thing, to me, it started off as being sort of semi-ridiculous. And it was just this weird thing that they're doing. You know, dangerous, obviously, and, and something that you don't want a child to be doing, but... The horror of the whole situation didn't really set in. I didn't feel like the movie was establishing that. There's all these beautiful shots of the settings that they're in. They're in all these really memorable locations around Japan. It's in color and like the reds and the blues really pop. And there's just something that's sort of candy coated about it. But very quickly that gets dispelled and also maybe even actively used against this and to sort of show you this bizarre world through a child's eyes who knows it's not right but doesn't know just how wrong it is yeah there are also a variety of techniques used in this mainly it's done in a docudrama style but there are moments of you know you see newspaper clippings and you know uses a lot of documentary technique turns into you know you see the boys fantasies in black and white sometimes i mean it goes there are a few sequences in black and white or tinted black and white and it, it, there isn't necessarily much logic to why it switches from color to black and white. I know that sometimes that was used just as a cost-saving measure in, in, for Japanese films at the time, but uh, right. that could be the, the only reason behind it. But the boy sort of wants to escape from this unstable life and go back to living with his grandmother. So there's a whole fantasy sequence of him going back, you know, traveling back to, to where he grew up and sleeping on the shore. And it, you know, and there is also, you get to see the seams of the filmmaking process sometimes. Like, they're clearly, like, ad-lib parts. You know, they'll go to a restaurant and, uh, you know, somebody will knock over a glass and it's, you know, clearly not planned. Or or, or there's, there's actually this one really surprising part where the stepmother has Pee-wee and Pee-wee's crying, I want my mommy, I want my mommy. And, and the stepmother actually, like, hands the baby off screen to apparently child's actual mother. And you see this happening on screen and it's so kind of brief and unexpected that it catches you off guard. You're like, what, what did I just see here? Oh, I just saw them breaking the, you know, the reality of this world to hand this crying child back to its real mother. And uh, it's, it definitely played. What? You didn't, you, <laughs> I'm not no sure. I remember <laughs> that. I don't think I noticed that the first time I saw it either, but there are all sorts of little breaks in the reality of, of what's going on in the screen. It's just, 
you know, Oshima being sort of playful and I guess in a Godardian way. I think in general, he's a lot more serious than Godard. You know, he's not joking around, but but he does like to use Brechtian distancing techniques and, and sort of show you the, the filmmaking process. And they're just little touches like this that throw you off guard. You know, sort of a hint of, of some of the, the more experimental stuff that he did previous to this movie. I mean, he's probably most famous for the mid-70s movie he did in the realm of the senses, which is the pornographic art film that, that couldn't even be shown in Japan the way it was shot. Uh, they had to fuzz out body parts, but uh, I'm sure most anybody who is serious about cinema has probably seen this film, and that's actually very different. Take out the hardcore pornography, and, and that film is pretty stately in the tradition of you know, Mizuguchi or something, but Boy shows more of Oshima's experimental side, but you have to kind of be looking for it. It does it in subtle ways. All the stuff about how he's an alien, I think it's partially like you mentioned, it's this sort of winking coyness. It's this, this joke that happens where, you know, because he really goes into detail about how he's from the Andromeda Nebula and he's going to kill the evildoers with his cosmic message of justice. And it's sort of silly because, you know, he's sitting there telling his younger brother this, you know, who's two, three, this this is like a little baby. And the brother is like totally like, wow, this is so... <laughs> the brother is totally into it, totally unquestioning. And then sort of the longer that this goes on and then the more traumatized that Toshio gets it becomes so sad and by the end it ends in Hokkaido which is that island at the way at the top of Japan and there's like a snowy tourist town that the whole family escapes to by plane which is of course you know very exciting to be flying on a plane that's very luxurious in the 60s even the late 60s and especially for a, a child who clearly is <laughs> You know, he the previously the most exciting thing that happened to him was that he got a, a new hat, which his mother bought for him and then tosses off his head and like stomps on it and forces him to walk away from it. So he has this sort of magical trip. And then, of course, this ends in I, I, I don't want to spoil this movie. I really liked it. But he witnesses a, a horrific event. Of course, like, you know, it only gets worse and worse and the family just falls apart and really like they all get worse and worse. And then it ends with this sort of this vision in the snow where he's sort of building this triangular snowman. He calls an alien and he puts this red boot for a face and he's going on and on about the alien. And meanwhile, his little brother is trying to follow him out there in the snow and the little brother is crying because he's cold and he wants his brother and it's just like I could, I could not, like I don't know, I don't know. Like I'm not, I'm not normally the person that wants to cry over like the small crying child or whatever. Like, but this, like this ending just totally broke me. It's just so, it's just so endlessly depressing. I just could not handle that little baby looking so sad. <laughs> well, one of the reasons I chose Boy to represent Oshima, like the figure in Japanese New Wave is because it's sort of an easy way in to his stuff. Like a lot of his movies are kind of cold and distant and it's hard to connect to his characters. They're all, you know, very sort of analytically done. And the drama is in a Godardian way is like, you know, this is all a construct. I don't really expect you to get totally absorbed in this drama. But the fact that, you know, you've got these two kids in this movie, it sort of automatically garners your sympathy and you are immediately invested in what happens to them. 
So I think if you're curious about Oshima, this is definitely a good one to start with. I, you know, for me, it was less about the fact that they were children and just more about the sort of bittersweet logic to the whole thing. I mean, like there's like a really painful nostalgia about the whole thing. It's like, just like think of your most painful childhood memory and then watch it on screen for like two hours <laughs> because, you know, like the, the when he goes on this plane trip, uh, I'm going to spoil a little bit, but there's a scene where a cop is talking to Toshio and he's like, wow, you flew on a plane. Isn't, you know, that's exciting. You know, like trying to sort of cheer him up and you get this sort of flashback of him on the plane. And you realize now that this moment that was the most exciting thing that ever happened to him ended up inevitably leading to the most horrendous thing that ever happened to him. And so now it's completely marred. Like all of these memories are completely marred and everything that he had previously that he thought was, going to be like everything just in his little child brain about like you know that was like a positive memory it's all this messed up shit you know it's all crap Mm -hmm. it's all just horrible and looking back on it suddenly you realize that everything that was sort of quirky and fun was just horrendous you know and and so it it lures you in in that sense so i would say that there is more than just children like there is like a really intriguing depth that creeps up on you watching this movie but yeah i mean like it definitely don't watch this if you don't want to feel lonely and depressed (laughs) well imagine this film without the children in it and that's uh that's kind of what you get from other oshima movies you wouldn't want to watch just the two messed up parents i liked merry christmas mr lawrence i think that's the only other thing i've seen by him yeah death by hanging is one of his more well-known, most beloved movies, uh, you know, most critically respected. That's a good one. And that's very Brechtian. Like you're not really drawn into the reality of the drama at all. But he is kind of all over the place. Really just one of these guys who tried everything and uh, is interesting for that reason. To bring this in context again for 1969, just maybe as an end note here, You know, there's some stuff that's really quite shocking in this film. I would say even by today's standards, to a degree. Number one, the abuse, the fact that this family is so actively dysfunctional and there's so much abuse between the parents to each other and then abuse to the children that is just shown so plainly on screen without much editing. (laughs) That's on its own, I think, pretty shocking, especially for Japan, especially for, you know, a country that really prides order and family units. And, you know, it's a sort of a general concept, but it does feel very new wave to portray this family as being worthy of any sort of gaze, even if it's to pass judgment about how horrible they are. And the other thing is that there's a whole plot line where the mother is talking about getting an abortion very plainly too i mean like it's just this sort of it's almost a casual thing for her which it was legal in japan was getting abortions in the 60s which is kind of just an interesting side note that was totally legal well i mean i think we could slap a disclaimer on all of these films that we watched for this episode they're all pretty shocking and transgressive compared to most of what we've watched so far i mean it's this is 1969 so everywhere in the world film censorship has been breaking down. Japan was really pushing boundaries with what it was putting out. You know, there were certain very specific rules that they couldn't break. Can't show genitals. And uh, and that's about it. There's pretty much everything else was, <laughs> was fair game. And what we watched for this episode, they're all 
you know, we, we sort of structured this episode where each film we talk about is more shocking than the last. So these are the most transgressive films we've discussed so far in this show. So maybe, I don't know, trigger warning, like, you know, if it's going to start with like a boy being abused actively by his family and pushed in front of cars, it's only going to get worse. So uh, there's definitely a lot of themes throughout this entire episode. So, but they're all good movies. So I don't know if you can handle it, you should listen. Anyhow, next movie. (laughs) It's called Double Suicide. (laughs) (laughs) We have at least one comedy here. I guess it sort of depends on your sense of humor, but it's not all totally bleak. Well, no, it's all pretty totally bleak. No, it's all bleak. (laughs) But this movie called Double Suicide. of the gems of Japanese New Wave, directed by Masahiro Shinoda, who was another one of the directors who Shochiko kind of, you know, let loose on their lot and said, here, make whatever you want. You know, he made some uh, Pale Flower, made, you know, it's a fairly well-known Yakuza movie where he, you know, gets a little experimental, but it really wasn't until he left the studio that he started really experimenting with the form. And this movie on the surface seems you know like a period mizuguchi type drama you know with the prostitute the pleasure girl who's who's trapped in her situation and and can't get out and uh, you know just a lot of people who are honor bound and and you have to follow the rules of society and it ends in tragedy this sort of thing i mean the reason for that is that this movie double suicide is based on an 18th century play by chikamatsu who's one of the great Japanese playwrights pretty much only wrote plays that ended in double suicides. You know, the the lovers have to kill themselves in, in the end. And that's it's romantic. You know. But this one is actually most famous as a puppet play, Bunraku. So at the beginning of this film, we see the puppeteers setting up this puppet play. And, you know, we see the puppeteers in their all black garb with their the, the black mesh over their faces. So you can't really see their expressions. And it looks like we're about to watch a puppet play and we get a little sort of documentary style footage of the behind the scenes stuff. But then suddenly the movie turns into live action and the puppets are played by real people, by actors. But while we're watching these actors play these famous roles, every Japanese person basically knows this story and where and how it's going to end in a double suicide so we see the actors playing these famous puppet roles. And we also see the puppeteers like standing behind them and helping them, you know, move and, you know, we'll, we'll assist them. Whatever props they need, the puppeteers will present them with the props or just assist them to fulfill their role in the play. And it's really an eerie kind of experience watching this play where you've got these puppeteers, these sort of ghostly figures in black who are always there, always present, and are kind of voyeurs to what's going on in the film. But at the same time, they're sort of pushing the characters forward to their inevitable doom. It's about a prostitute named Koharu, who has a married lover, Jihei. 
he's not wealthy enough. He owns a, a paper shop and uh, doesn't make enough money to buy her freedom from her owner. And so they just sort of know that they are doomed to never be able to be together and are pretty sure that their ultimate fate will be to have to go off and kill themselves together. But at a certain point, we find out that Koharu has gotten a letter from Jihei's wife saying, please spare my husband. I don't want him to have to die. So secretly, Koharu breaks up with Jihei, says, I don't want you anymore, you know, makes him believe that it's over between them. She's sort of doing this as a favor to Jihei's wife. And of course, Jihei is crushed and goes back to his life in his paper shop. You know, his wife, Osan, who's also played by the same actress, Shima Iwashida, she plays both Koharo and Osan. She's all in white geisha makeup when she's playing the prostitute, and she's got no makeup and black teeth when she's playing the wife, which is kind of interesting. I had to look it up. Yeah, that's a thing. Yeah, I guess um, sort of an indication that you're somebody's wife if you blacken your teeth, and it's... Um, it's supposed to look beautiful. Like it's considered beautiful to have these blackened teeth, but uh, it really is pretty creepy looking. And I had only seen it previously <laughs> in Japanese films with women playing ghosts. So I thought it was maybe a ghost thing, but no, this is something that was actually done. It was a, you know, it was a status thing to have blackened teeth. But anyway, turns out that some other wealthy gentleman is going to buy Koharu from her master and Koharu would have no choice at this point but to kill herself out of duty to Jihei. Anyway, Osan realizes that it's sort of her fault that Koharu is going to die. And at that point, the movie becomes about uh, them trying to save Koharu's life. So it's it's really the most interesting part of this drama is these two women, the wife and the prostitute, who don't even know each other but are trying to help each other out and save each other. So it's an interesting story for that reason. But mostly I really like was fascinated by how this sort of inevitability, this, you know, the way that these people in the society were sort of trapped in their roles and the, you know, watching the puppeteers control them and push them to their ultimate deaths. It was beautiful. And it's all done in a very stylized way. I've gone on for too long about this movie. What do you think? I think you're burying the lead because this movie opens with like a bomb ass oral sex scene. <laughs> <laughs> well, I knew you'd mention it, so I didn't have to. <laughs> Man giving to woman oral sex scene, woman receiving, and it's shot from above and it looks super beautiful because she is I think she's fully clothed. Maybe there's a there's a boob in all of these movies. <laughs> <laughs> this one is pretty well. I think I, I think she's she's fully clothed, but um, I mean it's very clear what's happening, and she's wearing this printed silk kimono, and then she's laying on this stage that has print on it too, and is also like in sections, and so like the whole thing looks like this really beautiful painting. It looks like the the kind of art you see in in the seventeen hundreds. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it it was really it was such a great opening besides the the movie actually the first like five minutes of this movie or, or less actually opens with this really meta scene where you see the actual puppets and you see the filmmakers you hear them talking about how they're going to shoot this film and so you get this like sort of documentary behind the scenes opening that then shifts into this live action version where you as you mentioned you see these puppeteers on all black 
kind of moving in the in the backgrounds and in the sides of the actual action of the actors who are sitting there playing out these roles of Jihei and Koharu and yeah and then it just goes like boom like right for the sex and then like that's it then the <laughs> the rest of this movie just kind of ends up dissolving into that sort of you know the honor nonsense about you're gonna kill yourself no wait I want to kill myself first you know like that <laughs> but you like you like love this movie right yeah I mean I'm kind of a sucker for that stuff anyway I mean I do I do love the classic you know the Japanese masters but I also love the way that this changes it like makes you so aware of the way the story is being told it completely sucked me in and it's so beautiful to look at every room that these people occupy is very stylized it looks like it could be the background for a puppet show there's like a moving set like there there it's it makes you feel like you're watching a play but it does not shot like you're watching a play it's shot very much like a film but you have these weird little, you know, like the puppeteers creeping in or you see the set revolving or you see basically that the wife's home, besides the actress being the, you know, the same as the wife and the prostitute, the house is the same. They just move certain furniture around. It's very interesting visually and it feels very modern, despite the fact that a lot of what's happening is just so like it's like watching a fairy tale you know it's like a sort of like really simplistic to easy morality play that as you said you know it how it's going to end yeah we don't have to worry about spoilers with this one it's <laughs> right right there in the title right there in the title so like there's an aspect to this that like that stuff doesn't really excite me unless the characters are really good which for me it, this didn't really do it but i liked it because it has this sort of like punk rock sensibility like it feels like it's in 1969 in a really weird way it feels like a really interesting and cool update on something that is old and a well-trodden path the stuff that's interesting about it is just like these those touches of seeing how it was made and seeing what they're going to do with it and then these weird punctuational sex scenes occasionally <laughs> there's like two like the, the second one's in a graveyard which is even weirder the way it's shot always feels so modern and then the story just sort of bogs it all down yeah i think the interplay between the modern and the traditional is is really what fascinated me with this just the hanging scene the way that jihei eventually kills himself he strings himself up and to watch these half dozen puppeteers like help him string up this noose so that he can hang himself and they kick the log out from under him it's so striking it's something that i finished watching and i i almost immediately wanted to go back and watch it again to see how it was doing what it was doing i don't know i guess it's a your mileage may vary sort of thing because it totally captivated me and i can't completely explain why do you like night tales a lot? Are you really into that code of honor stuff? King Arthur, chivalry stuff. Yeah, because I like King Arthur, but when it gets into like Lance a lot too much, I start falling asleep. <laughs> <laughs> I like the idea of it. Yeah, I do like that stuff, and I like the old fashionedness of it. But I also like how you know Once and Future King will sort of gives you this modern perspective on this stuff and. I think I must really just like the modern commentary on an ancient story. I, I think that's, I must be a sucker for that. Their ways of behaving are so different, but our you know, motivations are all the same. And the more things change, the more they stay the same sort of thing. 
Yeah, I mean, that definitely always is appealing to me as well. One of the things I was sort of curious about, but again, this doesn't play the same to me as a dumb foreigner in the future, but I'm curious if the true love story here was really between the wife and the prostitute, which was interesting in the sense that, like, they both basically were fighting for each other's honor and for the fact that the wife reached out to the prostitute to sort of talk about how much she loves her husband and then that broke the prostitute's heart and she had to then give him up because even though she loves him and she'll of course die for him so it was like this weird interplay where they never meet but their bond seems stronger like their bond of both agreeing that they love this total loser (laughs) that he is just worth everything to both of them seemed to mean more to them than even him in a way because he they would they could give up or or you know they both of them have these different ways of well you know i it was one thing when i thought you were just having a dalliance with her but if you're really in love with her and you don't want me anymore and for the prostitute it was like well it was one thing because i was ready to die for you but if she loves you so much i know what that feels like so i can't take her from you and so that that felt very played up in this to me and maybe in part because it's the same actress so there's a degree of like you're, you're sort of seeing her emote in the same way. And I don't know if maybe that just sort of crosses over in your my brain, but I'm kind of curious if that's something that is overt in other tellings of this, like with, with a puppet, because I can see how it wouldn't be. I can see how that would be more like a duty-bound thing, strictly and told less emotionally. And there's definitely, and maybe that's part of what makes this feel so modern, is that there's so much emotion given to this otherwise sort of simplistic plot. My assumption was that this is a trope that every Japanese person is familiar with. They know that this is a part of the story coming into it. But to us, to, you know, someone who doesn't know the story, it comes as a real surprise. Like, it's really unexpected to see that the real drama of this story is about these two women who never meet. I think that's part of what sucked me in. You know, once it got past the initial sex, you were bored, but I uh, definitely got hooked by that whole trope that is probably, you know, extremely familiar to Japanese people, but it definitely worked for me. I mean, it was still, this was an above average movie, so don't let my like, uh, you know, I I just wanted more sex. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you definitely get it in the movies that come after this. Plenty of sex. There wasn't enough sex in the next movie. (laughs) No, for a movie called eros plus massacre there really isn't a a whole lot of eros is there or massacre quite frankly yeah there's some So the third of the big Shochiku directors, Yoshida, Kiju Yoshida, as he's known, uh, I guess that's his nickname, or you can call him Yoshishiki. This is his three and a half hour masterpiece. This movie tells two different stories at once. One set in the 60s, in 1969, about these two young people, a, a boy and a girl, a man and a woman, who are, uh, you know, very, very much of the era. But they're fascinated by these real-life historical figures. Sakai Osugi, who is this revolutionary thinker in the 20s, 
controversial figure, very famous, and everyone in Japan knows him. Famous for having uh, three lovers at once. His philosophy is people can love who they want, as many people as they want at the same time. Um, who, who cares about these rules of society that we've had to live by for so many eons? This is the new way. This is the way human beings should be. And of course, this sort of speaks to the 60s sensibility this free love that's now very much part of Western culture at this point, and uh, also Japanese culture amongst young people. So there's a lot of back and forth between these two eras and how they sort of speak to each other. The movie itself mainly focuses on Noe Ito, the third lover of Satai Osugi, who um, is a feminist herself. She became the editor of a feminist journal and turns her back on her husband and children to pursue Osugi and we mainly get her story but it's sort of told through this lens of Eiko the woman in the 60s in 1969 who's interviewing the, the granddaughter of Noe Ito and trying to find out about the real person that she's fascinated by you know there are parts of the Sakei Osugi story that everyone's familiar with they know that you know, at one point, his second lover, Itsuko, tries to kill him. So that sort of plays a large role in the film where we get to see you know, her try to kill him. And it's presented in several different ways, like different interpretations of how the event may have happened. But the whole film is just, it's experimental. It's told in a variety of styles. But mainly, it seems like the real impetus behind this movie is to present the audience with beautiful images. This movie is super long, over three and a half hours long. The drama is not particularly engaging. There's a lot of fairly trite dialogue. You're not very engaged by any of these characters, and it, it is a bit of a chore to get through three and a half hours of this, but the movie is so beautiful to look at. Like You get a lot of like hazy, overexposed images when you're being shown the past, and a lot of it you know, uses a lot of negative space so that you get mostly sky and these heads kind of bobbing on the bottom of the screen, or you've got like a lot of these three-dimensional spaces that are, that are flattened into two dimensions. It's so compositionally perfect. There's not a frame in this movie where it's, you know, it's a cliche to say every frame a painting, but a lot of it is just how something will be perfectly framed, you know, this perfect composition, and the, the camera will move to a completely new composition that's just as gorgeous as the last, and it's so well thought out compositionally that you have to give this movie a lot of credit for something. Maybe in a lot of ways the story it's telling resonates a lot more for Japanese people who know these historical figures, but to a Westerner like me, I had trouble connecting to it. I mean, and the modern story was not any more engaging. These two young people... You know, you've got this like psychedelic music that plays whenever they're on screen and they're you know, having sex with whoever and running around twirling in these sand pits. There's and... like a shower masturbation scene where like she's like in the shower masturbating and all these <laughs> hands come out touching her all over. And of course, like there's a perfectly placed frosted glass circle where, you know, her genitals are. But of course, boobs aplenty. Boobs on parade for this whole movie. Yeah, don't worry. Any sexy thing that happens in any of these movies, Jenna is going to point it out for you. So you can just fast forward through the three and a half hours to the good parts. They're not good, though. I'm with you. The, the All of the modern stuff was really lackluster. Like, you sort of get this weird, like, she gets accused of being a prostitute. And there's this fun 
part of that where she's sort of like playing with the cop and it reminded me of like a hard day's night or something it's very like that sort of universal 60s punk kid thumbing her nose at society and the rules but i found them way less interesting than the historic side of this well i mean first of all there's like there's three things with this movie for me i mean it it, it is very long but as you mentioned it is absolutely gorgeous for the fact that just every single scene in this is so beautifully laid out this is a complete masterclass in negative space use in from just the get-go they're in like it looks like they're in Penn Station. It looks like this really ugly train station <laughs> that they start out in this really like blocky, boring, mid-century, like almost brutalist architecture. But it's shot just like, oh, like someone comes down an escalator and just you see most of the screen is covered by the big block of concrete wall, the floor above. But the way that everything's angled, it zeroes right into the woman that's standing there waiting. And it's just so it's like, <laughs> that's like the, you know, the first five minutes and, and you're totally drawn in. I can't overstate how gorgeous this movie is. And then, I mean, the way that they sort of interplay these characters, I mean, to me, this was the first I had ever heard about Osugi and Noe Ito and all of these women uh, in this whole situation, and then the fact that he got murdered with Noe Ito by the government. Like, there was this massive earthquake, which I guess at the time the government sort of took as a good time to, like, take anyone who was revolutionary or out of step, just, like, kidnap them, torture them, and kill them. Well, I think it was just martial law that was put in place, and it, it sort of gave the police permission to do whatever they wanted. And uh, while they're trying to control the the situation, they, oh, you know, let's murder a few revolutionaries while we're at it. Yeah, and I mean, it, it was really fascinating. And, and so I ended up sort of going down a rabbit hole of just doing some... <laughs> basic googling of just who are these people and and i would actually recommend maybe that you google them before you watch the movie because it would be what you would be coming into as someone watching this who's japanese in 69 anyhow and and again it's like the this isn't a movie about spoilers it's a movie about how you get there and how they tell this story so definitely i'd say it's going to be much easier to look up what's happening than it is <laughs> to watch this totally blind i think but I think the movie does a great job with that. I think they do a great job of drawing these parallels between the current day, you know, the modernity of 69 Japan and then the past, which is, you know, and it's as you mentioned, I mean, I think it's always fascinating to look at history when you acknowledge the figures of the past as human beings, which I guess is what you sort of called injecting modernism into history. But I mean, for me, it's just the only way to look at history, you know, I but I understand. We have no choice. Well, but, you know, it's like I, I feel like there's such a now maybe I'm just I'm going to preach a little bit just because this is the only thing I have a bachelor's in is history. Right. But like for me, like growing up, you know, you learn history in elementary school or high school or whatever. And it's always taught so dryly. It's always taught as like a figure did this and then we did that and that was this happened on this date and that was it and, and then when now we're here you know it's like and it, it doesn't feel real and it's it's almost purposely taught that way in, in a sense but when you look back at and i and i've definitely talked about this before and i've talked about this in multiple places and probably on 
this podcast multiple times, but I'm definitely, I feel passionately about looking and learning from history through an empathetic position and perspective, as opposed to something that's more arm's length or accepting the statue instead of learning about who the person was. But I think that it was quite interesting for them to draw this parallel between the fact that, you know, everything that felt revolutionary in 69, we've been here before. We've, we've even gone further. We had a, <laughs> in the 20s, we were talking about polygamy. In the 20s, we were talking about free love, you know, and to put an actor in the role to, to then be the face of Osugi and to revitalize that as a living human person who is out there doing these things and living this life as, as an anarchist, it's a really smart way to bring up what was really interesting about what this guy was doing and why he was killed for it. Unfortunately, with this film, you have to bring a lot of knowledge of the story into it because the performers that they've chosen for these historical figures are not very engaging. I thought the pretty boy with the, the fake beard that they've got <laughs> playing Otsugi is just, he, he had no gravity to him at all. Like I never for a second believed him as an actual historical figure and Ito is interesting like what they're saying she's doing and and what what she's doing is interesting but her performance is not very engaging I never was sucked into her drama at all there's the one point in this movie where you've got humans showing actual human emotions is when Itsuko is repeatedly reenacting her attempted murder of Otsugi this jealous behavior I mean I think the performer I didn't write her name down, but I thought the performer was really good. And the fact that she is, you know, actually showing some real human emotion made it the, the only engaging part of the movie for me. Yuko Kusunoki is the actress who plays Itsuko. Yeah, I mean, like, there was that one really brutal scene where she's, like, laying on top of him. And she's like, can you just hold me? And he's like, No. <laughs> And she's like, I have my period, just hold me. And he's like, no, and like pushes her off. <laughs> and then she kills him. That's what happens. So learn your lesson, men. Or tries to anyway. The movie actually ends, you see, or I don't know, ends. Like you see the beginning, middle, end. Like everything is sort of out of order. You get to see the deaths of Ito, Osugi, and I believe it's a nephew, Ito's nephew. But there's a young boy who's also killed with the two of them. And sort of you see repeated images, in, you know, shown in various ways, like in, you know, very stylized, stagey version where they're in chairs and it's very unrealistic the way that they're murdered. But then you see a more realistic version later. But then it keeps going back to the shot of them outdoors, the three bodies just lying on the ground. You know, it's very reminiscent of the two dead lovers you know, lying on the ground in double suicide. And it's just watching this these six movies already... I sort of see these tropes coming back throughout these movies. I mean, they're they're so modern, and yet they're clearly like all referring back to these Japanese traditions. So there is sort of this double suicide moment in this film. I mean, it's clearly referencing that trope, and you know, took having watched Double Suicide for me to recognize that that's what it's referring to, and and we'll see that trope come back for other movies that we watch too. But. This is a tough movie. I mean, it's sort of a monolith <laughs> or a a big chunk of Japanese cinema that you should probably tackle sooner or later because there's a lot written about it. You know, one of the most famous books on Japanese New Wave cinema is called 
Eros Plus Massacre. So it's like, you know, it's a real reference point for this era of Japanese filmmaking. So make sure you're ready for it when you jump in, but uh, you should get to it sooner or later. I mean, it's worthwhile watching just because it's so goddamn beautiful. But so here's my problem with this movie, Bart. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Now, this movie, you know, taught me about some interesting historical figures I didn't know anything about and who I would I would be very curious to really go in depth and and learn more about them I also have a lot of respect for somebody who in like the early 1900s at a time where you know kissing in public was radical was like yeah I'm I'm just practicing free love and I'm gonna (laughs) take you know a bunch of lovers and we're gonna live happily because we all choose to and I think women should be in control of their own magazines and, and you know so so osugi is an interesting objectively interesting person and was doing something that was far more radical than even what was happening in the 60s as far as pushing boundaries but here's my problem and my and my biggest problem and this mm-hmm. isn't even it's not with osugi it's with the movie i think that they spend too much time on Osugi and how he feels and so this movie ends up just being about men you know which it ends up undercutting now I'm not saying that I'm pretty sure that Osugi was probably a pain in the ass person uh, you know as the real guy Um, which he I think that this movie actually does get across quite well gets that across yeah (laughs) Um, (laughs) which in a way I think is pro them hiring this pretty boy actor who is sort of very stoic and people get really frustrated with him and he's like whatever it's fine you know like <laughs> sort of rates it up but i don't know if like if you're gonna wrestle with freedom and this concept of freedom then you have to like you know show the women partaking in that and instead all we see is the women obsessing over him and wrestling with how to deal with him and you know they they want him and they want freedom but their freedom gets limited by his freedom and i mean the movie is an uncritical about this because you know and it's but but at the same time for a four-hour movie it's not it's sure as hell is like indulgent in this fantasy of his and you really don't know much about these women you hear that like they are you know are doing feminist things but we don't ever see that and, and it's the type of film i don't know if this would like you know pass the the bechdel test you know it's like it, there's too much emphasis on him and these women barely exist without osugi in the picture and they rarely even appear on screen without him unless they're talking about him so like they don't even appear in a sort of meaningful way so it's like to me like watching this now it undercuts the whole theme of what's trying to be stated in the film and it's like we can sit here and talk about you know what's free and how free is free and but it just frustrates me because it's like well why does he get to talk about philosophy and then they have to deal with this like grounded practical downside to it (laughs) which i think you know it's so it's not the movie isn't aware of that because as i said it's not that the movie's uncritical of him he even has a a point in the end where he says free love was wrong and i I screwed up clearly (laughs) because this has become a -hmm. big issue and everyone's trying to kill me now but when all the modern people you know those two modern students all they do is sit there and talk about like sex and all this stuff but you know we we get to see this woman masturbating in the shower or we see her talking about like maybe i am a prostitute we see her naked all the time all the time like a whole 
room gets burnt down and she's standing there naked. And of course, the men never take their pants off. They're like topless maybe, but they don't take their pants off. So it just feels like they're in, in this to me is also indicative of like 1960s, late sixties talk about freedom and free love and feminism. There's always like this sort of ceiling that we hit where you're almost there. And then they just like, it just veers off into like male fantasy <laughs> and we kind of lose what actually could have been cool about this. And it just sort of goes back into like, but, but you guys see all those boobs. Oh, that's really great. And like that gets backed up by the fact that the seventies was just full of that shit. <laughs> Like it gets veered off completely. So I found this movie hard to watch, not because it's so slow, which is, you know, part of it, not because it's old, you know, like these older figures and not because it's too abstract, but just because it's just like, you know, these women wringing their hands over if it's wrong to stab a guy for being a prick. <laughs> when it's like when he gets to sit here and talk about like free love and, and living as an anarchist and breaking the rules, you know, and it's like, if Yoshida really wanted to talk about freedom, I feel like he would just let these women like pull a canoe and like move down to the beach. <laughs> you know, like they there wouldn't be so much thought about this. It would be like, well, why'd you stab him in the neck? Well, I felt like it. <laughs> you know, like there would have been more of this emphasis on that. And instead, you know, it just turns into boobs galore. That's my rant. I agree. There's definitely too much of him and his philosophizing, really dull conversations with his male buddies when, you know, we're supposed to be getting the story of this uh, early feminist who's speaking to this free 60s woman. And that really just doesn't take up enough of this movie. That aspect of it is not very interesting, and it should be the most interesting thing about it. Again, as, as a movie that's important, as a movie that's beautiful, as a, an interesting a historical figure being portrayed in, in an accessible way this movie it, it nails that but like the it doesn't capture for me it doesn't capture the real spirit of the philosophy which i think that if you're really going to tell this in you know this sort of double way with a modern take and the historic take then you have to actually do it man but you know time for a remake <laughs> yeah <laughs> but the next movie when I said that this past movie was boobs galore, what I meant was it is nothing at all like Blind Beast. Which is directed by Yasuzo Masumura. Well, this is a little country tale. <laughs> sit, <laughs> sit around the fire, children. As let me let me tell you this nice little country tale of uh, a model named Akishima, who's played by Mako Midori, and she is hanging around her latest art show where she is posed nude in this provocative photography with like chains and stuff like that. And, you know, typical model art show in the 1969. And she's standing there and she witnesses this blind man running his hands all over a nude sculpture of her. 
And she's like kind of into it, but she also kind of freaked out. And so she ends up like running home and then calling the in-home masseuse to unwind, which sounds like a very not creepy thing to do. And of course, the masseuse that gets sent is not her normal person. And it ends up being this blind guy who she like thinks is the same guy, but she can't tell until she feels him touching her body. And then she's like, oh, yeah, this is (laughs) this is the same guy. And she's sort of abusive to him. And is like, you know, stop being a perv. And he then kidnaps her. Uh, when she wakes up, she finds herself in this pitch black, massive open warehouse space. And there's like thousands of sculptures protruding from the walls. And they're sculptures of different body parts. So as she is in horror and terror, feeling her way around this crazy space she realizes that like one wall is just like only eyeballs and one wall is only ears and one wall is only legs and one wall is of course only boobs and etc and then in the middle of this room are two giant nude lady bodies coming from the ground as if they were like bathing in the ground but they don't have any heads they're just like headless torsos giant boobs giant legs <laughs> yeah about, about half this movie we spend between two giant sculpted breasts yes and then the blind guy who kidnapped her he's there and he is like hey your body is my ideal so i'm gonna keep you here until i can sculpt it myself and so the entire movie is basically like aki trying to outsmart the psychopath and his mom, who is, of course, enabling him completely and ensuring, because the mother can see, and so she ensures that Aki can't escape. Yeah, so she's just sitting here trying to outsmart everyone and, and escape in between panic attacks, basically. <laughs> and I will say that it only ramps up from there. Why did you choose this part? Please explain yourself. Well, it was made in 1969. Masumura... He's kind of been around longer than the rest of these new wave directors, but he brings the craziness and the, you know, sort of freak show aspect that makes these movies a bit, you know, more artistically interesting than uh, than your typical, you know, youth, youth culture movies that were coming out in the 60s. And he, you know, I think maybe uh, technically he's probably not considered one of the new wave directors, but he, he often gets lumped in just because his movies are so, you know, button pushing and really transgressive and and uh pushes boundaries he definitely deserves a lot of credit for going further than a lot of directors did but he's still also just sort of making popular cinema this it's based on a book by rampo who's you know a very famous mystery horror thriller writer in japan and you know gets adapted all the time for a lot of you know creepy psycho movies i mean this would be just sort of your standard kidnapping sex slave movie except it's so weird i mean you've got this you know that the art direction in this with all these disembodied body parts and the storyline where it's about tactile art it's like what it's trying to do is reconfigure you know voyeuristic pleasure as tactile pleasure so it's sort of this movie is sort of a gradual descent into touching instead of seeing well let me tell the rest of the plot. How far are you going to go? I think we have to fully spoil this movie. 
And I don't, right. and I will say that I don't think it takes away from the movie. In a, I mean, it, I guess it could. Well, okay. I'm going to give you a hint of what's to come. I won't tell you the end of the movie, but I'm with you, number one. I think that this movie is so visually striking and so visually out there that it is absolutely worth a watch, even if I have some reservations about the rest of the film. So eventually, it's just one of these movies where it's a mix of she tries to escape multiple times and then fails. She then tries to make the mother jealous so that the mother will kick her out and you know a couple of things happen in between but what kind of it ends up with is that she then eventually kind of accepts her fate she allows herself to be raped which i feel like is a very 60s sentence (laughs) Mm -hmm. which of course after she is repeatedly raped she now has a slight affection for her kidnapper here yeah if you're worried this movie is gonna end in uh, Stockholm Syndrome, it for sure does. It takes <laughs> yeah. it to, to the furthest extreme of Stockholm Syndrome. You've never seen it like this before. Once she starts to accept him and his love, then everything starts to sort of disintegrate. Like her eyes, she claims her eyes atrophy because she's been in the dark for too long. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't even get, there's no sense of time because she's in this windowless room and he's sitting there like he's meant to sculpt her. That's what he's trying to do. And he says, I'll let you just, you know, leave after I sculpt you, which, you know, again, there's some, there's some hitches in that. And also he does a terrible job of sculpting her. It doesn't look anything like her. Well, I can't see. Well, yeah, but like the boobs are way too big. Like it's almost like he's doing like the crappy anime version of her. But anyhow, so her eyes atrophy and they start to just sort of live sex and that's it. And, you know, sex gets boring when you're having it every hour on the hour every day for question mark amount of time i don't know and so they start getting into like weird sex or at least maybe weird sex is judgy it gets very weird (laughs) i'm not even being like a prude like it gets very like it starts off with biting and then it gets into like just pure pain it ramps up to as as crazy as you think it could be it goes crazier I'll stop there short of fully spoiling it. But in in a weird way, I would say that this is honestly the most, considering this is, I think, the most out there crazy looking movie, just as far as pure depiction of like a, a completely surreal situation. It's honestly the most puritanical movie at the same time, because I don't know what this is about other than you know it's a slippery slope from free love to (laughs) it's like first you pose naked and (laughs) then it just ramps up to such a crazy place and so i don't know what you're meant to get out of this other than you're opening pandora's box if you stray from society's boundaries it is about being trapped by society's boundaries i i think I, i in a way it's you know just telling the whole double suicide story again you know, these two people are trapped in their situation. He's blind and, and is very restricted in what he can do. And she's like physically trapped by him. So they're both in these prisons. It's a little different. <laughs> well, you know, visually it's very different. But it's also, you know, this catharsis of accepting your fate in life. You're trapped. There's nothing you can do. So just, you know, take it to the extreme. Like it's it's just this sort of death 
ecstasy fantasy. And I don't see it as puritanical at all. I, I see but it But the as... only reason she gets kidnapped is because she posed naked. So it feels like a punishment. Because I would actually, I would be totally down for a movie that was just like, get freaky. <laughs> <laughs> Which like they easily could have, it's 69. Like you can do that. Like no one's going to question it. But this one feels like if she hadn't posed for this photographer, who she goes on and says, He's very artsy, and, and I only because I trust him completely that I even bothered to do this. This is totally not the sort of thing I would normally do as a model, and she has this whole explanation for it. And then this guy who is, he's blind, so he is limited in society, but it feels like this is a punishment for the fact that she ended up limiting herself by posing naked. To me, I can't see it past that, which, again, maybe this goes back into that sort of 60s limitation of, you know, maybe you're meant to be watching this as a man or a woman and thinking, slut. (laughs) (laughs) You know, maybe you're meant to be watching this and thinking like, well, that's what happens when you dress that way or whatever, but... I will admit that this movie is pure exploitation and, and you know, to argue that it's not is, is ridiculous, but... I don't see it as a punishment for her at all. The movie opens with this. Well, first it opens with these like Ozu like opening credits, just like on this fabric, these, you know, very you know stately opening credits. And then all of a sudden you see these artistic S&M pictures of her posing. And it's all very like harmless and arty sort of flirting with these, you know, transgressive S&M images. But these images that she's in are, are so safe and it's her. Oh, you think this is provocative? Just wait. We'll show you some real, like, twisted S&M stuff here. So then if you're going to sort of accept it as, as in the end, she does find ecstasy and that she does break past these boundaries, then you have to accept that it wasn't Stockholm Syndrome, which is just as uncomfortable. Because <laughs> then you have to accept that she really did. She got a couple of rapes in and, and she found true love. So, like, that's where I get caught. It's like either she's being punished or she finds true ecstasy by, you know, exploring this realm of the senses, as it were, with this guy and sort of like breaking the chains of what she thought was freedom, which is interesting, again, as a concept, but like, I just can't accept it. But it's about, it is a movie about S&M, though, which is, you know, getting sexual pleasure out of, you know, allowing things to be done to you, combining pleasure with pain. and. This movie is just sort of playfully taking that to the extreme. And I think that's the whole point of it. It's like, what will you allow yourself to do? What will you allow to be done to you in order to experience ultimate pleasure? That's a really, you know, sleazy fantasy sort of synopsis. Like it's pure exploitation, but it's it's also, I mean, done in such a playful way, provocative, button-pushing way. You know, I mean, this movie is a comedy. It's a very dark comedy, but it is funny. There's just not enough of a moralistic intent in this movie. It's sort of a movie without any kind of morality, I think. So I don't feel like she's being punished at all. But it's also, it probably was never intended to be discussed this seriously. Like, it's just (laughs) a provocation, this thing. I'm not sure Masamura was trying to do much besides that, except really you know, shock and provoke people and make people uh, giggle uncomfortably. I think it's like, like to accept that is to sort of also say, and this isn't, and and it is what it is, but to accept that is to also say like, this is a movie for men. There's just no empathy for 
there's no human understanding of her situation in this. Like, it just, it doesn't make any sense in that way. And so it's like, it's, it's harder for me to even like get into the, get into the S&M aspect of it because it's just like, oh, this is questionable logic. But I mean, it does make me think of, you know, and this is, this, I don't know, it's sort of unrelated, but I think about in Japanese, the word for cute is kawaii and the word for scary is kawaii which is sort of like the same word. <laughs> and there is this sort of boundary in general between something that is cute and something that is scary. It's like a quite a kind of a thin line. And so maybe part of what this movie is about is in a way that line between pain and pleasure and, you know, whatever gets you off, man. 69, baby. <laughs> exactly. I, I mean, she is... She's clearly much smarter than anyone else in the movie, and you are rooting for her in all her schemes to get herself free. I mean, I think there is something for a female audience in here, in a way. Like, you know, she's not just a victim. She eventually chooses to accept her role as a victim, or we're supposed to accept that as her choice, in a way. Which is ridiculous and, and pretty gross, but I, I think... That's what it wants us to believe, anyway. Great film. Yeah. <laughs> Next, we push boundaries even further with Toshio Matsumoto's Funeral Parade of Roses. This is a movie that I'd seen once before. I mean, it's kind of legendary in a way. I mean, it's a Japanese film about transgender people. It's about being gay and dressing as a woman in modern Japanese society, which, you know, on its own is fascinating that this movie could be made. This is one of those films that, you know, made on a low budget and distributed by ATG, the Arts Theater Guild, you know, encouraging filmmakers to just express themselves and make any kind of movie that they want to and this this movie is clearly the work of somebody who is putting everything he's got onto the screen now Matsumoto mainly did documentaries and there's a real kind of documentary feel to this movie and it actually inserts documentary moments where he interviews the actors in the film you know asking them about uh, you know what it's like to be making this movie and this movie is basically a transgender version of Oedipus Rex. It focuses on Eddie, who's uh, an entertainer in a drag club. And her ambition is to become the hostess, like for it to be her club. Actually, I'm not sure. As far as pronouns go, I'm not sure what. For a movie about transgender people, and I'm not an expert on this, but it is... I think a little, it's definitely different from how we would look at these things today. And so I think there's quite a bit that is, you know, like they call themselves, you hear them saying gay boy, like in English. And there is this sort of concept still in the sixties of them being men dressing like women and having gay sex. Like that is how they speak about themselves in the movie, especially in these documentary interviews. And it's definitely how the filmmaker keeps asking them you know like are you, what why do you do this like why do you dress like a woman but i think what's really 
cool and interesting about this movie, and then we'll get right into the plot, is that from what you hear being expressed by the people that there are being interviewed, it really doesn't sound too different from what it is today or, you know, how we, how we would define these things today. So by, you know, using female pronouns and calling them what they are, which is women, but the vocabulary used in this is of course dated. And I guess for me, I I would probably just go ahead and say her (laughs) for Eddie. And it's interesting though, because the actor who goes by the name Peter, Pita, that I can't figure out, at least on sites in English, if Peter actually calls themselves transgender or not. Like, I think that they're definitely non-binary, but I, I actually can't tell. So I don't know. Like, that's another, like, question mark. Well, in the language of the film, they refer to them, or at least it's translated as queens. But will you hear them say, like, if you listen to the dialogue, like, they say, like, gay. Or gay boy, yes, yeah, generally translated as queen in the film. So Eddie is trying to take over this club from Lita, who is the hostess of this drag club. And Eddie is going about that by sleeping with Gonda, the owner of the club, who is involved in all sorts of criminal activity that they don't get too specific about. But Gonda is, you know, he's having Eddie, he's having Lita, he's... uh kind of an amoral guy but it's his club so he's sort of the way to the top for eddie but meanwhile while this whole story the sort of classic all about eve sort of story is happening we also get eddie's private life hanging out with friends and you know a real artistic crowd and you know one of them named guevara who who has kind of a Che guevara beard is a filmmaker and so they sit around watching his art films this is definitely the most experimental of all of the films and it throws you know so many different techniques out there there's a lot of fast motion fights and sex scenes and there's bits of you know non-narrative experimental film stuff the excuse for that being in there is because these are the films that they're watching you know these friends when they get together and smoke pot and dance and and take their clothes off it's really a, like everything but the kitchen sink sort of movie. It's like throw it at the wall and see what sticks. And the first time I saw this movie, I didn't really know what to make of it. It didn't really come together for me. I just thought it was a whole bunch of different stuff thrown together and couldn't really get it to gel in my mind, like what this movie was trying to do. But this time around, I loved it. It's such a, it's so much fun. Like even, you know, there are parts of it that, you know, it's the Oedipus Rex tale. So there's a tragic conclusion it's playing with a whole story with eddie is oedipus in the myth kills his father and marries his mother that sort of thing and there's this whole like you know freud has based all of his theories on uh on this you know sort of oedipal complex but this movie is sort of playfully reversing that and you know not i i hate to spoil too much but it does have a um tragic shocking ending which I found jarring the first time through, but I, I sort of realize now that it's all sort of part of the playfulness of, of this whole movie. And I think that's how you have to go into it. It's just a lot of fun, this this movie. And, uh, and, and you know, take it in the right spirit and, and you'll have a great time. I mean, this was my first time watching it. And I've been, this is something that's been on my radar. I've been wanting to see it. Definitely, it was not what I expected. It, it's It's weird. I mean, the stuff that I ended up liking the most I think was those little documentary snippet interviews because it just felt very, you know, you have this sort of these, these probing questions from the director that were sort of crass. And then you get these very like honest and sweet responses from all of the people that they interview. 
they're just so openly living the lives that they choose to live. And so like the, the movie in general feels very like an unjudgmental take on the transgender experience or the homosexual experience, which of course was not ever like mainstream accepted in Japan. It still isn't. There's still quite uptight about a lot of it. So I thought that like just as a sort of beautiful portrayal of like non-cisgender people and love and and life and happiness it's a wonderful film the oedipus rex stuff you know that didn't really come together for me i mean it is like i understand like i you know i like the playful moments of this there's a great scene where eddie's walking with all of her you know with a couple of her friends from the club and they end up going to you know they're like out like girls shopping day kind of almost like montage where you see them like strutting down the street and then they end up going to the bathroom at the same time and they're like talking about something they're like really engrossed and then suddenly you see these like three women standing at urinals and like a guy walks in and, and like does a double take. It's like one of these like it's like almost cartoonish, you know, and then they even tackle stuff like homophobia with a sort of also cartoonish flourish. So like there's a scene where three of these like very rough and tumble women stop, you know, Eddie and her friends and they're like, you're not women. And they get into this like cat fight which is shot almost like a Benny Hill montage. It's <laughs> like really silly, even though it's this like kind of horrible situation. And there's a lot of jokes about cinema. There's like these sort of fake Jonas Mikas videos or like there's even like a sort of third man homage within the film. So, you know, like there's this great kind of irreverent 60s attitude that is on display I think maybe in the best out of all of these movies that really just captures like a youthful irreverence that you come to expect from a movie that comes out you know at this time but then I don't know I mean like I guess I'm, I'd be curious to hear about we don't have to spoil the ending but the ending to me it was just another thing where something happens to Eddie where, you know, there's this crowd of people come around to watch. And to me, it just felt very isolating and sad, which would make sense for this, you know, after having this sort of fun romp to just say, like, in the end, there's still other. Even in a situation where empathy should be the only reaction that you have, these people come around and they think other. And so that to me was this was a kind of a bummer ending that of course also gets it, it gets indulgent <laughs> at the same time but well the ending and i think i didn't know what to make of the ending the first time i saw it but this this time through i i i mean it was pretty clearly like the people gathering around eddie who's just stabbed her own eyes out a la oedipus they're watching like this is some kind of performance art and earlier in the film we see eddie like watching these this like parade of Luxus type situationist type artists doing their performance and i think we're supposed to connect the two things it's like it's all just putting on a show this is all you know whether this idea will fly nowadays or not i don't know but the the whole idea of the movie is just sort of this putting on a show it's a way of life where you are performing as you know this other person it, it's it's life as a performance and that's sort of what we the, the it's the movie is it's about these youths living out their own artistic vision i guess you're saying it's like portraying gender as as almost an artistic choice it's gender as 
performance, and maybe that's, you know, the, the state of affairs in 1969. I mean, the, the movie is playing with these sort of layers of reality and, and performance the whole time. In following the Oedipus myth, we see this flashback to Eddie, who, you know, has not become a drag queen yet, has not created his female persona yet. Um, Male presenting. Mur- murdering his mother because she's having sex with this guy who's not his father. And we don't know if that's, you know, an actual memory or a fantasy or or what. And I think that all of this movie is just, you know, in sort of like Blind Beast, but with a very different tone, is just a playful fantasy. Well, I mean, this one out of all of them felt the most Godard to me in its comic sensibility. And then there's a lot of those sort of stops and like the, like narration, like text that shows up. That's sort of sarcastic. Yeah, there's text that's sort of commenting on what's happening on screen, and it's all kind of puns or sarcastic commentary on what's happening. But the whole thing does have a playful tone to it, even when it's hard to tell what the intention of, of what's happening on the screen is, even when it comes off as a bit shocking. It's all done in a in a spirit of play. Yeah, I mean, and definitely, like, that. there's parts of this that just feel like it's Matsumoto's take on the way that transgender people are living mixed with, I guess, again, just how 1960s Japan defines the situation. I mean, like there's that scene where everyone goes to a funeral and there's like a line about, oh, roses were her favorite flower. And someone else sort of quips like, and they had to be artificial too. (laughs) And so like this idea of if you're going to accept this idea that gender is a construct that that it can be artificial and that, you know, it, it doesn't really matter maybe also in pursuit of pleasure, then yeah, I mean, like this whole movie is playful with this concept of, of real and artificial. But I feel like there is, it, it interestingly, it sort of stops short from passing judgment on the idea that artificial is somehow bad. And I think that's really what keeps this afloat in a lot of ways, is that it actually steps up to being truly progressive in a way that the other previous films maybe sometimes like hit a ceiling with, this one at least is open-minded enough to not rule that this is bad. Eddie's situation is bad, but there's never a point in which you feel that Eddie is bad or that Eddie is wrong or that Eddie should be somebody else. And so sort of the unspoken becomes what ends up really keeping this fresh and modern and funny and just overall a really interesting if nothing else a really interesting capsule of the the fringes of 1969 japan yeah there's not much else that you can point to that gives a snapshot of gay culture in japan i mean this movie is really pretty one of a kind as a clue into the kind of verbal punnery that goes on in this movie Roses, I guess, are uh, in Japan is sort of the equivalent of pansy, a slang for someone who's gay. So there's a lot of like, you know, you'll see a line of butts and you know one of them will have a rose stuck in it. And it's like, every, you know, one out of eight of these people here is a rose. In a way, it, it is sort of tourism. It's like showing mainstream society, showing people who barely even know that gay culture drag queen culture exists giving them a tour of what it's like you know you get that in the interviews like the director's questions to these people are coming from a place that's obviously much more ignorant than the director himself is you know very pointed like 
aren't you ashamed to be gay sorts of questions and, you know, given very direct, honest answers that are clearly real, but like these are people giving honest answers. And it, it's also, you know, there, there's also the drug tourism in this too, you know, at the party when they're smoking pot, like they the director also asks questions like, what's it like? What do you feel when you smoke pot? The whole movie has this sort of touristic quality that's really pretty interesting. But it's totally different than like the whole Mondo thing. Like, oh, you're going to be shocked by what you see in this movie. It's like very accepting. It's very clearly on the side. Like there's nothing in this. It's absolutely celebratory, this movie. Like it's, you know, some things might not pass muster in current times, but it's still like totally celebratory and uh, pretty miraculous that this movie even exists and definitely something everybody should see. Agreed. And I'm going to let you tackle this last movie pretty much by yourself. <laughs> I want I want very little to do with this last movie. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Well, guess who picked it, Martin? <laughs> <laughs> well, we had to delve into the Pinku films a little bit, and so... I think Blind Beast was your Pinku film. This is just... <laughs> the, the last film is Go Go Second Time Virgin. <laughs> Which is directed by Koji Wakamatsu. And this movie opens with like 10 solid minutes of gang rape. Like kicking and screaming teen girl gang rape while a boy stands off to the side and distressed but watching silently all of this go down. And it was at about the 10 minute mark that I texted Bart to tell him that I hated him. (laughs) (laughs) But then. But yeah, things turned around for you in in a way that I don't think they turned around for me at all. (laughs) Well, a turnaround is a strong word, you know, (laughs) but thankfully, I will say maybe not even thankfully, it's also a strong word. But after all of this, the movie, it gets a lot weirder. And I was sort of expecting it to be more of a Pinku film, to be more of an exploitation film. But instead, Popo, who's the girl, she wakes up the next morning and, and she decides to sort of pull... Uh, like a Bartleby the script <laughs> and says like I prefer not to leave the scene of the crime and I'm just going to stay on this roof for the entire day and so that observer guy who's named uh, Sukio her and him spend the entire day on the roof just like discussing things <laughs> a very wide variety of things from suicide to death <laughs> yeah and real range <laughs> really huge range of stuff and um this movie it's only super dark like weird shit that these two <laughs> bond over and yeah you you totally forgot about uh sexual abuse as one of their main topics of discussion yeah and and we learn eventually that Sukio has like five dead bodies in his apartment because he killed all of his roommates for trying to sexually coerce him so, yeah, this movie becomes gang rape girl who also claims that she was born from gang rape. And this is the second time she's been 
great. She has a, a previous experience. And then serial killer kid who proclaims he's super into murder, but he has to have a good reason for it. It's the the two of them for it's a, thankfully not a very long movie, but they're just trying to figure out how to die. That's <laughs> that's the film. This is definitely just for on screen distressing violence i would say this is definitely makes a lot of sense to be our last film here what was your opinion on this i i mean i thought it was an ugly film about ugly awful things happening to not particularly interesting people there's definitely an anger to it that like made me think that there's some hidden depth here like maybe there's something that i wasn't quite getting but it also is like for a movie that's just barely over an hour long it runs out of ideas pretty quickly like they're pretty much on that rooftop for the entire time they go down to see the dead bodies at one point and the film goes into color just so you can see like all the blood and the rest of it is in black and white or tinted black and white and yeah i mean it just at a certain point you know they're trapped on the roof with the rapist gang who have brought this time uh you know few playmates with them some willing females to have sex with up on the roof and uh and they you know they run into popo and and sukio and they're like oh look it's the kids from last night like it's no big deal that that they had raped her and like you know what what's the big deal and, and you know it turns the whole thing turns really homicidal and it's the anger in this is really about just how far society has like degraded like in in, in becoming desensitized to violence and people being you know horrible to each other and like at a certain point popo and suki are, are, are talking oh i just want to read a comic book and then you get these snippets from this like super violent manga you know where it's just filled with with swords slicing people in two and it's clearly it's making some kind of commentary on how we become desensitized to to violence and how it's affecting youths but it also seems like it's having it both ways like that's what i found particularly kind of reprehensible about this movie it's like condemning violence and rape but at the same time also really getting a lot of pleasure out of showing it on the screen so yeah i had had a tough time with this movie i'm with you this is you know it's it's edgelord the movie (laughs) I mean, everything, just any single detail that they can insert into this about how, oh, like, my mother was gang raped and she gave birth to me. And, um, you know, if you want to rape me, that's okay. I'll allow it right now. And, uh, you know, um, peeing into his mouth. There's, like, a scene where the the gang, like, you know, is bullying him. And and I think, or they're pouring liquor into his mouth, but I can't tell. They, They definitely pour liquor into her vagina. You know, there's just so much... There's that weird song that Sukio sings yeah. about like any name drops Norman Mailer and I'm like, yeah, I can see it. <laughs> I don't know. I don't have an interpretation for that song. I'd have to like find the lyrics. It's like kind of nonsensical, but it's also sort of great. Like, I think that the thing that kind of worked for me at the end of the day was just how weird this movie was. Like it does indulge in all of this crappy edgelord stuff and it does end up indulging in everything that it clearly hates and it's one of these sort of fuck you movies while being a hate letter kind of movie 
And those can be really taxing to watch. <laughs> but what, what kind of worked for me in this was just that it never, it shows you these things, but it doesn't feel like it's having fun showing you these things. And that was the shift. And it might just be that, you know, I'm maybe because it didn't go where I thought it was going to go, that now I sort of give it the benefit of the doubt after the first 10 minutes. Because for the first 10 minutes, I thought, this is horrible and screw this movie. And I just can't stand this stuff where they have to sit here and show you the rape while they show you her boobs. The camera is sitting there gazing down at her body while some, something horrible is happening. I can't stand that kind of crap which the, you know, the seventies is totally like rife with, but, um, in the eighties, Jesus, but there was something just that was so off about this. And in the end, the only way that I can kind of come to it and make sense with it is to kind of point to it as like a marker at, at the end of an era. Like to me, I mean, there's, at, they show this with that, that manga montage that you mentioned, they also show photos of Sharon Tate, pregnant, and Polanski, and they kind of, like, they keep showing that in the end, and what then, like, you start to sort of realize maybe what was happening here is that this is a, this movie, as you said, about how terrible violence is and how far we've come, but I think that it kind of also, it takes the Manson murders as being this kind of, like, shocking event heard around the world clearly and these sort of murderous themes and in, in on-screen hyper-violence depictions and it it kind of becomes this like almost spiritual purging for the director <laughs> like I can't see this movie as being about characters because the characters are so flimsy and they're so fake you just don't ever have a sense of them existing but they feel to me like part of a ritual that you would perform to sort of mark the ending of something. And so like to call back to the title, a second time virgin, which does get discussed. I'm pretty sure that Popo kind of talks about like, well, I'm, I'm a second time virgin. I'm, I'm trying to remember now. I don't like, I don't even remember the line that she said. There's that, a poem. Oh, there's a poem right. that they quote and that's, and that's from the poem. I don't have the poem handy, but right. She has a he has a song and she has a poem, so she does bring this up. But to me, I think like the the second time virgin ends up being like again this marker. It's a death and a rebirth, so you can reinvent yourselves kind of the way that that Popo sort of tries to do, and and you can be new again. But you also can't erase the past, and you can't kind of cover up the scars that cause you to reinvent yourself, and so. You know, I think this feels like the end of an era kind of movie to me. It feels like a director's very personal struggle with just trying to understand a world of just pointless terror <laughs> and the sort of end of an innocence and saying, basically, if I can't beat him, join him at the same time. Yeah, there is. You're right. There is something really ritualistic about this movie. And it's some of it is, is, is just so repetitive. Even just the dialogue is these characters say the same things over and over. Like, how many times can Popo say, I want to die before you start to think, oh, well, maybe she doesn't really want to die. It, it is sort of this, you know, repeat things over and over until, you know, it means something or it doesn't mean anything anymore. And that may be the way to watch this movie. And there's also, I mean, I think 
here's another movie that ends with a double suicide. And I think that this trope is a kind of purging. It's a way to say, okay, things are awful in this life. So we're going to kind of ritualistically kill ourselves and sort of get past this moment, you know, free ourselves from the prison of this life and, you know, reinvent ourselves. Like, I, I mean, I think it is something sort of ritualistic to get you to the next stage to like, you know, just to think about life as, as sort of cyclical death and rebirth sort of thing. Like that's, that's the only way I can make sense out of this trope and what kind of satisfaction there must be for Japanese audiences to see this ritual performed over and over again. Yeah, I mean, like, it's, it's you know, I think it's a wrestling with the changes that everyone's going through, too. There really was a, a cultural and societal breakdown in the 60s in, in so many different countries on top of, like, moving the sexual boundaries of what's acceptable and notable political violence that was happening throughout the world and then even cinematic uh, reinvention, you know, this is such a decade of change. And, and this is sort of this exclamation mark of an ending, you know. And, and I think that coming out of 69, a lot of people didn't know what 1970 would even be. It just felt like, like wow, <laughs> how much further can we fall? So, yeah, I mean, I think this ends up being like an acknowledgement of what everyone has been through at the same time in a stab at creating some control within these moving boundaries and, and trying to, as you said, and in a way the suicide is an attempt at control in a, <laughs> a sick way. You know, it, it is sort of taking power where you can get it by saying I'm done and ending it, which of course realistically is not the case. Please call a suicide hotline. But, you know, symbolically, and especially I think, as you said, with all of these double suicide themes of all these other movies it does it makes quite a lot of sense yeah and I, I think to have the trope come back like this sort of traditional feature of classical japanese literature like be repeated so frequently through these movies in 1969 there is this sort of connection to the past and there is this idea like look at how far we've come since then but how far have we even come? And and I think that, yeah, 1969 is a good marker. Like, everything seems so different, but it's the same. Like, this fear of losing a connection to the past, but also this excitement that everything is new and there are no boundaries anymore and, and we can do whatever we want. So it's, um, I, I, we've, we've spoken of this anxiety that seems to crop up in, in a lot of 60s films. You know, the sort of fear and excitement about how there don't seem to be any rules anymore. Right. And that shows up in these films that are so bizarre and twisted and depressing, but they're made with this idea that there are no rules anymore, that we can do whatever we want in film, and who's going to stop us? Who's going to draw the boundary line? Who's going to say that, no, you can't do that? And, and it's just this, this impetus to keep pushing further and further and further. And 1969 is about as far as a lot of these filmmakers could push it and still call their movies art. We definitely descend into a lot of, you know, Roman porno is the name of Nikatsu's series of pornographic films in the 70s. And these pink films, the, you know, Wakamatsu is called the king of the pinku films. And it's, you know, everything is clearly just going in this direction of sex, sex, sex. And 
and violence. In 1969, they push the techniques of filmmaking about as far as they can. And the only boundary left to push is just this, what can we show? You know, the, just being as transgressive as possible in terms of, of what you know, the sex and violence that's being shown on the film. And I think there is kind of a downturn at this point where things get less interesting. Not to say there aren't masterpieces from Japan in the 70s, but there's definitely a downturn. Filmmaking as an art form, experimenting in the form seemed less the goal and just pushing moral boundaries or, I don't know. It, it, it's definitely a turning point. And that's one of the reasons I chose 1969 as the year to discuss Japanese new wave, showing where it ended up rather than starting at the beginning. We haven't spent enough time, I think, at the end of the decade yet. And that will sort of inevitably happen, especially as we go through our Kiss, Mary Kill episodes. We're going to start to really have to watch a bunch of stuff from the end of the decade for this whole season, actually. But it's always so wild to me to see what comes out of 69. And I think that Japan was really interesting to look at because in a lot of ways, these movies are pushing way more boundaries than you even get out of Western film. Whereas I feel like Western movies, they kind of drift off at the end of the 60s and into the 70s. They either turn out in like that new Hollywood or they end up being just like soulless. <laughs> mm. So they're either like, absolute genius or they're just like the most pandering dead <laughs> and then it gets interesting again and then it dives down real hard in the 80s for me at least it is just sort of fascinating to think about again and, and this is something we've brought up but just how crazy it is to see how much changed culturally between 1960 and 1969 and it's so on display even if you know nothing about japanese cinema but you are a human being who is aware of how time passes. <laughs> if you even start with these 1969 movies, I can guarantee that there will be multiple things where you'll say, wow, I can't believe that this came out in 1969. Well, next time we'll go back to the early days of the 60s where there was still some hope. You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conosceva bene by Piero Piccioni. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema-60.com. And follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.